Hey, a quick content warning at the beginning of the episode. I'll be talking about American history, and during the course of my discussion, you'll hear a lot of my personal political views, which are quite liberal. If you find yourself offended by such views and don't want to listen at all, that is no problem. I just wanted to give you a heads up before we began. Pop Culture Avidavid, episode 132. Where we're going because of where we've been. And the river opens for the righteous. 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 And the river opens for the righteous someday. Welcome to episode 132 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So it's been a little while since my last episode. I took a couple of months off for May and June because the end of the school year and, well, life in general, it just kind of kicked my rear end. So this is going to be the first episode of actually several that will come out over the summer. I'm going to do a twice a month thing this summer instead of a monthly thing. I don't have a formal mini series in the way that I did It Came From Syndication or Fallen Walls Open Curtains going on here. But this is the first in a three-part series of episodes of the show And the focus of them is on America, our history, our culture, and our people. And it's going to be shown through some nonfiction-based popular culture. Like I said, I'm not bannering this as a separate mini-series or anything like that. They're just going to be regular episodes of the show. But as I was prepping this next slate of shows for summer 2022, I found myself falling down a rabbit hole of various works that focused on us as a country. And even though a number of them are about as old as I am, I thought they would be worth looking at. Now I'll get more into the specifics behind my choices in each of these individual episodes. Right now, I will tell you this little mini series of sorts is going to be one of the two episodes that will drop in July, August, and September of this year, with the other episodes for those months 
just being some random movies, TV show, the usual types of episodes for this podcast. Now, with all that housekeeping out of the way, I guess, I'll tell you what this show right now is about, what this episode is about. For the first of three episodes, I will be looking at American history. Specifically, I'm going to be looking at American history as told through the comics medium. I've got a few selections that I've chosen, starting with a couple of comic books published in the 1950s and 1960s, and then concluding with two graphic novel interpretations of American history from the late 20th century and 2016. And I will get started with all of that right after this. Do you think of yourself primarily as a singer or as a poet? Well, I think of myself more as a song and dance man, you know. <laughs> You may call him Lucky Wilbur. You may call him Bobby. You may call him Zimmy. But the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. For our first stop along this comic book tour of United States history, I'm going to take a look at a book from the post-World War II era that is in the public domain and I found on Comic Book Plus, that is if you're interested in following along. Now, there's a whole non-fiction category over on Comic Book Plus, and if you click on the subcategory of books about the United States, you'll find 22 individual comic books. They include books about the geography of the country, such as your United States, books about specific states, like the story of Wyoming, biographies of presidents and historical figures like George Washington, Martin Luther King Jr., John F. Kennedy, and Harry S. Truman, and stories of great battles, accomplishments that are general, but also like really specific stuff like Victory at Niagara and Laura Secord. Yeah, really specific. There's also one about like a New York senator as well. So it's 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 interesting to, to flip through for the um, the ephemeral aspects of it all. But two that I found peculiar were both promotional comics uh, that were put out in stores. One was called 50 Years in America, and it was published on behalf of J.C. Penney to celebrate its 50th anniversary. It's basically a timeline of progress throughout the past 50 years while Penny's was in business. The other day was called Every Day is a Holly Day, H-O-L-L-Y. That was courtesy of Holly Sugar, and it was distributed in grocery stores. According to the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum website, Holly Sugar was founded in 1905 in Holly, Colorado, and grew into one of the largest companies in the region, eventually opening the Holly Sugar Building in 1967, which was the first of a number of high-rise office buildings in Colorado Springs. That building, it's now called the First Bank Building, as Holly Sugar no longer exists because it was merged with Imperial Sugar in 1989, 
and the last vestiges of Holly Sugar in Colorado left for Texas in 1997. But back when this was published by Brevity Incorporated in 1952, yes, that is what the copyright says about it, and I can't find much else about a publisher named Brevity from the 1950s. I found like a lit mag, I found a couple other things, but they're more contemporary. Holly was all over the store shelves, at least in that region. So this comic is a 16-page rundown of important, quote, American holidays, like Washington and Lincoln's birthdays. Because remember, back in the day, we used to celebrate those separately before it all got folded into President's Day, and they took away a day off. Mother's Day, Flag Day, Independence Day, Columbus Day, Thanksgiving Day, and holidays I'm sure we don't celebrate that much anymore, even if they might still technically be on the calendar, like Pan American Day and American Indian Day. When it comes to that last one, by the way, the comic does note how the United States took Native American lands, but blows it off by saying, but the past is gone, Indians live at peace with their conquerors as American citizens, free and equal. Um, If you are side-eyeing that the way I am, that's okay, even with the knowledge that this comic was from 1952. Go right ahead. Speaking of comics from the 50s, let's get to the comic book that I chose to take a look at from the era in more detail. This is called A Picture Story of the United States, and it has two separate editions that were um, on Comic Book Plus. Now, I wasn't able to get an exact date on either one of them, nor was I able to completely discern who the creative teams were. The first edition, though, I'm pretty sure was published somewhere around 1952. It follows American history right up to the founding of the United Nations, and among the last few pictures is a shot of someone standing at a UN podium with the building from New York in the background. Then there's a mention of Eisenhower being elected, which would have been in 1952. So this is either late 1952 or very early 1953 when this is published. The second edition came out in about 1966 or 1967, uh, because 66 is the last year mentioned, and its text and uh, in its text, and Lyndon Johnson was still president at the time. The book doesn't have any indicia throughout, um, but at one point in the first edition, we see the address of Johnstone and Cushing, which was an advertising agency that was founded in 1936, according to a page on the Hogan's Alley blog. That company specialized in comic strip-style advertisements, and they would appear in magazines and newspapers. In fact, they were one of the leaders of this style of advertising, and they promoted a number of big companies that are still around today. R.C. Cola, Nestle, Shell Oil, Fleischmann's Yeast, and Ivory Soap were among those clients. Moreover, they employed a number of the day's top cartoonists, including Milton Caniff of Terry and the Pirates fame, and Lou Fine, who was involved with a number of Golden Age characters, including the Ray, Dollman, and Will Eisner's The Spirit. According to the article on Hogan's Alley, Johnstone and Cushing started making comic books for clients in the 50s because the comic strip style of advertising was drying up. And that kept them going for a while as they put comics into publications like Boy's Life. And they worked with companies such as DuPont, General Mills, and the Big Three Automakers. 
The company eventually did go under in 1962 because it could not adapt to changes in print advertising or compete with television. It's actually a fascinating article. I will include a link to it in the show notes. Now, this comic, I said, like I said, has no writer or artist credits. It was distributed according to its first edition by the United States Information Service. Now, this was also known as the United States Information Agency, and it up operated as an agency devoted to, quote, public diplomacy. It was formally discontinued in 1999. It now exists as the State Department's Office of Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs. Much of what the USIS produced was anti-communist propaganda for use overseas in places like, for instance, Southeast Asia. In the case of this comic, I don't know if it was only available overseas or if it was ever distributed within the United States. Like I said, I happened upon it on Comic Book Plus, and my best guess that it was commissioned by the USIS, Johnstone and Cushing took the assignment, and then perhaps it was distributed as a comic book in other countries to show the history of the United States, or... It could have been put in classrooms around the country because it does have the feel of some of the typical educational materials I've come across here and there from that era. But seeing that this was the era of Frederick Wertham and Seduction of the Innocent, my hypothesis there uh, might not hold up. I don't know how much they wanted comic books in a classroom despite how educational they were. The first edition of the comic book is 48 pages long. The second edition is 52 pages long, with both of them being similar up until about the end of the Second World War, as the later edition has to take us all the way into the mid-1960s. I'm not sure, by the way, who did those particular pages from the beginning of the Eisenhower era into the middle of the Johnson administration, because Johnston and Cushing had folded by the time USIS distributed the second edition. It is possible that it was Stenzel Productions. That's what the company uh, Johnston & Cushing became after it was sold in 1962. And one employee of both Johnston & Cushing and Stenzel was Bob LaRose, who was one of the production heads for DC Comics for quite a number of decades, into the 90s, I believe. I will link to Bob LaRose's obituary in the Long Island Herald. It details some aspects of his career and is an interesting read. So, back to this comic book. I'm giving you guys a lot of background here, and I haven't even gotten to what's in the comic book. The comic book is a chronological history of our country. It begins with the mythical voyage of Christopher Columbus, a daring explorer who was inspired by Marco Polo's adventures to find a new way to China. Now, to the book's credit, there is a panel about Leif Erikson. But Columbus sailing the ocean blue in 1492 gets a glorious two pages, eventually leading to the Age of Exploration and the settling of Jamestown, which eventually gets us to the Mayflower and the story of the first Thanksgiving. And it's all the stuff that you typically know from the way it has been told for many decades in elementary school classrooms. A lot of people who are my age who are listening to this will remember all those stories about the first Thanksgiving and Columbus and stuff like that. It's, it's told in the same sort of manner. But what I will mention, though, is something I thought was really interesting. It's a panel on page six of the comic. And the narration box says, One morning in 1619, a man o' war arrived from Africa. We see a bunch 
of half-naked African men being unloaded from the ship, with the white captain saying, I have 20 black slaves for sale. Two men stand on the docks, and one says, good, they'll make our lives easier. While another says, slavery is never good, this is an evil day. Now, this comic book is incredibly simplistic. I mean, you've got to do 200, 300, almost 400 years of history inside of 48 pages, 52 pages. So there you go. But it is incredibly simplistic. Slavery doesn't get mentioned again until page 19, uh, where the banning of the transatlantic slave trade is talked about before we get to lead up to the Civil War. And I found it interesting, though, because it specifically mentioned the date 1619. Now, this is a comic written in 1952. So it wasn't something that was ignored or was not known prior to uh, recent publications, uh, which are very well written, by the way. Uh, But the story of the United States um, from there, like, you know, slavery is baked into that story, even in this edition from the beginning. However, from this point, it really is overwhelmingly white. Uh, The next black person appears on a panel about the Underground Railroad on page 26. And even then, we don't get like Harriet Tubman. We get a white family protecting runaway slaves. Otherwise, the book itself is typical highlights of what we know from American history. The growth of the colonies under England, the revolution, which comes complete with a panel reproducing Washington crossing the Delaware, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the struggle that eventually resulted in the Civil War, which was slavery and is clearly defined as a fight over states' rights to slavery, Um, and then the highlights of important Americans' presidents and those who were not presidents. Uh, What the authors also do is mark progress in addition to history. So alongside recollections of this important historical and political events, there are pages about the growth of industry, uh, American identity in the arts, the exploration of the West, even imperialism under Teddy Roosevelt. Well, they don't call it imperialism, by the way. The comic book takes a few moments as well to note how American values are important. This begins with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, saying, Thus did the new nation set the pattern of its future, a government answerable to the people, two parties, the one a constant check against the other, protection of individual rights, opportunity for all those willing to work for it, especially in the open West. And we eventually get into the early 20th century. This is when the West has closed and the post-Civil War progress has finally reaped its harvest. We have a reminder of those values on page 37 with, but with all this material of progress and prosperity, Americans did not lose sight of the foundation on which their blessings rested. Free education for all, the free spread of knowledge and the ideas, the right to worship as they choose, the author of all blessings. It is a reminder that's necessary right before those major events of the first half of the 20th century, World War I, the Roaring Twenties, World War II, the Depression, World War II. And those are events that shake the nation, and they really shake the world. I mean, they are world wars. And, and it's, it is always interesting to study the lead-up to the First World War in Europe mostly, um, and and how that really marks the end of a very specific era of history in in the West, 
and then how things have changed by the time you get to 1945 and 1946 and why they came about and just the 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 way things turn on these huge events. I mean, it's just one of the things I find fascinating and even fun and some facts uh, to study about history. So the authors go into note with the Roaring Twenties. They talk about how they were only roaring for some. And farmers, for instance, were suffering and often poor, and uh, rich people were rich on paper and not really, and the nation paid for it because they, then came the Depression. But then comes FDR. He saves the country. He's another mythical figure in this story, you know, right up there with the Founding Fathers and Abraham Lincoln. And then when the war ends, we get the half page of the founding of the United Nations on page 46 that I mentioned. Uh, that's supposed to be a beacon of hope for the future. And then there's a final note about our values, which begins in the bottom of page 46, and it finishes on page 47. And it reads, Once more Americans might give thanks, as their forefathers had given thanks in the wilderness of a new world, for the blessings bestowed upon their land, for the preservation of freedom which had brought their nation into being, and through the years had been its guiding light. There is no point at which a living nation's story ends. Even as the pen is lifted, some great event might be taking place. Since this small book was begun, for example, the country has chosen a new president, Dwight Eisenhower, whom you have met in these pages. It seems fitting then to close the story of America with the founding of the United Nations, the end of war's long night and the dawn of a new day, bright with man's hope. There have since been disappointments and disillusionments, but the great hope still remains. This story has been one of quest, quest for opportunity for material happiness, the quest for better ways of doing things, and above all, quest for freedom, freedom of mind and spirit, for all men created equal in the sight of God. And the last page of the first edition is just a shot of a map of the United States, which at that point was just the 48 contiguous states. Now, the second edition, or at least what's been scanned and uploaded to Comic Book Plus, because I get a feeling that maybe a couple pages are missing in the way it just sort of abruptly ends. But that edition does not end as gloriously. It just kind of takes us through the Cold War. It highlights U.S. accomplishments like the Marshall Plan, the Berlin Airlift, and the Truman Doctrine, the space race, and our crusade against communism. Uh, the Korean War is shown to be a victory for democracy here as opposed to kind of a frustrating stalemate. And as they say, the Forgotten War. And we see progress in American life as segregation is outlawed and the suburbs expand. The last panels of the book are about our commitment to the independence of South Vietnam, as well as United States relief efforts for hungry people around the world. Something tells me that's not the end of the actual comic book, like I said. Maybe there was a similar ending to the one I read earlier from its first edition. But, you know, I'm going by what has been uploaded to a free comic book uh, service for public domain books. So I can't exactly be picky. But overall, this comic book, both editions, serves well to be a good piece of propaganda from the era, where this is a mythological aspect to the American story, but it's clearly grounded in real events. 
The style of the art supports that. The unknown artists do not employ any sort of cartoonish illustrations or characters to depict the events or people. Instead, they just show them using the most accurate likenesses as possible. Ben Franklin, George Washington, Abe Lincoln, they all look exactly like we're used to seeing them in paintings. The picture of LBJ taking the oath of office next to Jackie Kennedy looks like it might as well have been traced from the actual photo. It's all meant to show how all of these things really happened. Plus, slavery does play a role in the story, which enhances America's mythical qualities because of the way the authors use it as a flaw in our society that we overcame or a problem that we solved. Kind of a piece of proof of our country's commitment to freedom to everyone. And yet, as far as history as propaganda goes... It's actually not as bad as some of the more egregious textbook examples. And I mean like literal textbooks, not like textbook as an adjective. It's like the type of stuff that was introduced into history curricula in the South by organizations like the Daughters of the Confederacy so they could support the lost cause. There's like a whole history of this that you can read about on the internet. It It is fascinating and frightening at the same time. Um, There's also some of the more virulent anti-communist propaganda that even took aim at labor unions uh, back in the, you know, back in the height of McCarthy. Although this particular comic treats labor unions as a mark of progress, probably as a way to reinforce that the workers' right to exist can benefit capitalism. Because really, the lesson to learn about America in these 48 or 52 pages depending on which edition you're reading, is that there is progress and there is freedom, and it's the freedom that helps bring about the progress. And yes, not everyone has always had that freedom. But we fix that according to this comic book, and the history is just a reminder of what we have overcome as we go into the great, big, and beautiful tomorrow. Now, it sounds cynical to say that the hardships endured by people of color and women at the hands of white men during the course of American history are used as props in this comic and many other histories that focus on the exceptional nature of the American adventure rather than more nuanced and often grittier realities. But it's a valid point no matter how cynical it is. I know that a picture story of the United States could not get into such granular detail. Like I said, I was trying to tell, what, like 350, 400 years of U.S. history from Columbus to LBJ inside of 52 pages. But the tone suggests that even if they wanted to get way more detailed, they wouldn't want to present it in any other way than how they did. Now, one person who does get plenty of space to tell the entire American story is Larry Gonick who's the cartoon history of the United States was published in 1987 and 1988 and then updated for a paperback edition in 1991. And that's what we're going to be looking at next. Gonick is a cartoonist who was born in 1946, and he is most famous for his books, The Cartoon History of the Universe, which has three volumes, and they were published beginning in 1977, with the most recent volume coming out in 2009. You are probably familiar with the Cartoon History of the Universe books, even if you haven't read them. They seem to be a mainstay of used bookstores' humor sections, 
And before most libraries began separating graphic novels into their own section, they could be found in the 741 portion of the nonfiction collection. Now, instead of taking on the entire universe here, Gonick takes on the history of America, starting with the question that a picture of history of the United States answered with Christopher Columbus, which is, well, who discovered America? He talks about the theory of the land bridge migration thousands of years ago, as well as documented voyages by Chinese explorers and Vikings uh, before Columbus even thought of setting sail. And then he discusses that particular voyage, 1492, which even though it's technically not the first European voyage to the continent, it did open up the idea of this being a land to be explored. I'm putting my quotes up to the mic and subsequently conquered by European powers. So Gonic dismisses with the myth-making and his storytelling pretty much right away. He also does so by leaning into the idea of the cartoon history. While there are plenty of lifelike illustrations of important political historical figures like Abraham Lincoln, for instance, Gonick's style is very much that of the funny pages I grew up reading. I'm reminded of B.C. or the Wizard of Id in places, uh, a little bit of Berkeley Breathed thrown in for good measure, as well as what I used to see on television for years, and we all did if we watched Saturday morning cartoons, which would have been Schoolhouse Rock. And that tracks, because Gonick was writing this and illustrating it during the 70s and 80s. That was peak Schoolhouse Rock era. He might have seen it on television or in some context, especially if he had children. And it's very likely he, if he did, they might have grown up in this era. He's a year younger than my father. So, you know, I will, I will, that's where I'm, I'm thinking maybe he was influenced a little bit by that, as well as it was already part of his own style. Anyway, that's just conjecture on my part. Let's get back to the cartoon history of the United States. After the discovery of America, the book heads right into the usual chronological discussion of the history of our country. Gonick divides the work itself into two separate parts. 1865 is the middle of it. For good reason. It is the end of the Civil War. So it's up to the Civil War and after. And funny enough, that's how my junior high school experience with American history was arranged. My seventh grade class covered the, quote, discovery of America up until the end of the Civil War. My eighth grade American history class went from Reconstruction to the present. Of course, since our teachers always ran behind, we didn't get much of the very uh, present day stuff during eighth grade, and we only learned like two things about the Civil War in seventh grade. The first one was that the cause was slavery, and the second one was that we won. It's not wrong. Anyway, Garnick is, in a sense, giving us a textbook. But unlike the textbooks you get in school that were at worst wholly inaccurate and at best really, really dry, this is a very fun read. Plus, he does not askew the uglier parts of our history or try to reframe them as props for the white man's history show. He does a great job pointing out some of the bigger hypocrisies of our country throughout its history, especially when our actions as a country or society have come in direct conflict with our purported values. Sometimes he'll do this by having a non-white or non-male person pop onto the page to make a, whoa, 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 wait a second, 
type of remark or comment when the more mythologized aspects of the American story are presented. Other times it's more direct, such as the way he sets up a side-by-side list of Thomas Jefferson's writing and principles and the facts of his life. And then he goes on to note how for much of our history, the notion of the American dream, you know, that favorite phrase of politicians and American lit teachers, excluded black Americans, Native Americans, women, for example. It's a hard road to hoe, by the way, because he has taken it upon himself to tell the story in a straightforward manner, using humor, but he also wants to make sure that different perspectives are explored or acknowledged at the very least. And I'm amazed he actually does not fall prey to the equivocation that comes with both sides-ism. That seems to plague the mainstream media these days. They're often seen as left, but they seem to be obsessed with showing how biased they're not, so they actually wind up giving credence to ideas that most of the public would deem wholly unacceptable or even repugnant. But right off the bat here with with the cartoon history, Gonick does this, um, accomplishes what he does by not just trying to give us the whole picture, but showing us how complex it really is, too. A simplified version of the 1700s is that we were 13 colonies whose freedoms were being trampled on by the King of England, so we were revolted and the United States was born. Wave the flag, wave the flag, 4th of July, play the Sousa music. All right, but then, of course, you have the everybody has seen Dazed and Confused, right? You know, there were a bunch of white slave-owning aristocrats who didn't want to pay their taxes. Gonick gets into the details with the facts and the stories. They show how complex each of those 13 colonies were. And even how after the revolution was over, the idea of a, quote, United States was a revolutionary concept in itself. You had 13, almost 13 separate countries operating within an umbrella as opposed to, say, what we have now. Again, conjecture on my part, but I imagine that if we continued under the Articles of Confederation, the United States would probably have resembled, at least in terms of its political structure, something akin to what the Soviet Union was like, where they were all separate countries, but they were under the Supreme Soviet. Anyway, um, when he gets to the revolution, he also doesn't go for some sort of Hollywood representation. He makes sure to highlight the relative ineptitude of the nascent United States military at the beginning of the fight. Now, he he gives Washington plenty of credit for his leadership, but the people who get the credit they, they deserve and don't often get credit for are the French. You know, don't forget, the French armed us, provided us with money, and trained us to fight. History books will tell you a little bit about the Marquis de Lafayette because he is a figure, but I don't remember really learning about the full extent of France's role in our revolution until years after I was out of school, was just kind of reading and and watching movies and stuff like that, or documentaries about American history a little bit more. From what I recall during my school days, the French helped, but we really did it all for ourselves. Really, though, we don't exist as the United States without France. Even if that goes against the image of Americans as self-made men and the French as snail-eating surrender monkeys. Excuse me, I have to take a bite of my freedom fries. What Gonick also does with this, by the way, is show the reader 
How America was part of the larger global struggle from the beginning. Really, as far back as Columbus, we've either been a piece to fight over, a supporting player, or a main cast member of that show, depending on the time in history you're talking about. During the 1700s and the early 1800s, we're definitely the former. We're, the, we're establishing and we're growing. And the way westward expansion is treated in the cartoon history is less of this Aaron Copeland-scored John Wayne-starring epic and more of a very, very messy and often very brutal series of episodes that show how the cries for and against the expansion of slavery accompanied this sense of manifest destiny and how those who were central to the plot were a lot more complicated than we often realize. As much as Gonick presents Abraham Lincoln as larger than life in places, he also shows him to be very complicated and struggling with the idea of emancipation. It's not as hypocritical as, say, the dissonance between the ideas of Jefferson and the life of Jefferson, but Lincoln was not a firebrand progressive by today's standards. And Gonick uses the quotes, uh, his own quotes to illustrate that point. In fact, I really like the way Gonick handled the whole Civil War period in this book. It is, by my own admission, one of my least favorite periods of history. You know, and, and you know, it's not just the Civil War, it's like most of the 19th century, I just don't find particularly like really exciting uh, in both the United States and most of the world. But knowing that entire volumes have been written about the Civil War, and knowing that he's got an entire 130 years of history to go after the Civil War, Gonick gives the conflict several pages of real estate, showing enough information for us to know what caused it and what happened, as well as making us realize that there is more information out there and we really should go out and find it. That's honestly what a really good textbook should do, right? If anyone tells you that a high school textbook should be the alpha and the omega of American history, then they're either trying to pull one over you or they're a complete idiot or both. Like this volume, textbooks have an enormous amount of history and information to shove into a limited space. So they're going to be pretty much an overview in a number of places, which is why even the most accurate ones tend to be pretty vague. Any good student or a curious person for that matter, knows that if you really want to know the whole story, you do dig deeper. Gonick lets us know this through the Civil War, as well as the treatment he gives the rest of the 19th and all of the 20th century. It's not just captains of industry and American strength until we're a superpower. No, it's the struggles of the labor unions, the women's movement, the civil rights movement, and highlights their triumphs as well as their setbacks, many of which are often violent. He's pulling from not only what we'd consider a mainstream view of U.S. history, but also alternative historians and alternative views, like Howard Zinn, whose A People's History of the United States really is a must-read, even if Zinn's writing tends to be incredibly dry in places. In fact, I'd recommend Zinn, I'd recommend Ibram X. Kendi's Stamped from the Beginning, a History of Racism in the United States, and I would recommend James Lowen's Lies My Teacher Told Me because of the way they take the American story and either switch the lens through 
which were uh, viewing it or shine light on what we've come to accept as, quote, truth. I have not read the book-length version of the 1619 Project, but I did, I, and I still have my copy of the New York Times Magazine version of it, and that was fascinating and really, really worth the read, and not just for Hannah Nicole Jones's opening essay. Uh, the rest of the pieces in that are um, outstanding pieces of writing and history research, um, and I would recommend that too. So I think one of the reasons I liked the book was because Gonick uses humor to get all of this stuff across while making sure that those other lenses and lights are seen. So it's not just a silly portrayal of American history. He really is trying to show us things that we might not have seen all the time in books. I think I also like it because it reminded me of my American history class uh, from 11th grade, which was, uh, or one of them anyway. Yeah, I said one of them. For some reason, and I, I hope this has changed since 1984 at Sable High School, I had to take two U.S. history classes. One was the regular honors course because everybody in 11th grade took uh, American history. You had to take the regents exam for it. But then they had... AP U.S. History, and that was an honors elective, so I had to take a push in addition to the honors social studies course. Now, for all I know, that was totally by accident, and I really only needed to do one, but I don't know. I mean, my, I wouldn't put it past my guidance counselor. You know, he was not the most attentive or useful person. But seeing as I was not the only person taking both courses, I think it was just my high school's stupid way of doing things. Anyway, my honors history course was taught by, there was a point to this, Mr. Gerbino. And instead of going like chronologically through American history, he took us through the lens of the U.S. Constitution. So that meant that we studied the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and then we looked at various events and histories that interacted with the articles and the amendments. I loved this because it meant we didn't spend a ton of time on the revolution or on whaling, which is like, for some reason, I know more about whaling than I do the Civil War because of where I grew up. We got to spend time in 20th century history. We got this time spend time on the stuff that often came up during that, that one class period they had to do it in May, and they would always give us this sort of, well, you kind of know this happened already because it happened recently treatment where we're all sitting around like, uh, we've been watching like G.I. Joe cartoons for the last five years. None of us were studying American history. Who here is barely paying attention to the news? Like, you know, we were ignorant teenagers. <laughs> Some of us knew a little bit more than others, but really, come on. Anyway. What I also liked is that it was in that class, it was never questioned when we looked at the really ugly shit, too. We took in-depth looks at Wounded Knee, both the massacre in the 19th century and the, uh, re and, and the, and the uh, protests in the 1970s, as well as the reemergence of Native American rights movements in the 60s and 70s. Uh, we looked at the My Lai Massacre as part of a pretty extended look at the Vietnam War. And we even looked at like really contemporary controversies. You know, my junior year of high school is 
93 to 94, I remember we spent a good couple of days talking about the Los Angeles riots, the Rodney King beating, and such uh, in class. Now, none of this was perfect. I could point to class discussions where a bunch of white kids from the suburbs showed they didn't necessarily know what they were talking about when it came to the struggles of African Americans in Compton um, or Watts or something. But it's more than I think we would have gotten in a more traditionally run American history class. I don't think my eight push class got to anything beyond the into the 20th century. I think my, I literally, if I'm thinking about it right now, I think my teacher said, here's a list of topics. You can research one of them on your own so we can cover this. And I chose to write a paper on the AIDS epidemic, which he was surprised because that wasn't something that he would have figured somebody would have chosen. So there you go. Anyway, Gerbino took us, he trusted us. He trusted us to look at the ugly parts of our history unflinchingly. And Larry Garnick challenges us to do the same, especially when it comes to the history of his own generation of baby boomers who have a hang-up with their own nostalgia that is fodder for a total other episode or a series of episodes of this podcast. And in some level, it's coming next year. Trust me, I'll get back to it. But really, he does not spare the rod to take an nostalgic approach by talking about how, oh, the 50s were simpler times or whatever hand-waving we get about like how terrible things were in the past for people who were not white. He's just as critical of the 50s and 60s, the 1950s and 1960s, as he is of the 1850s and 1860s. Even mourning in America doesn't get the kid glove treatment altogether. The cartoon history of the United States stops in 1991 with the first Bush administration and Desert Storm, which must have just happened before he wrote it because we don't get a hint of what would happen afterward. I know that after writing this, he went back to the cartoon history of the universe series and he wrote other books. So we never did get an update or section for the next couple of decades. So I'm kind of curious as to what he would have done with, say, 9-11, its aftermath, the 2000s election, the Iraq war, the present struggles we face. It might be good for an update if he has the energy. Someone who does, though, and, and did because they published it in 2016, Ilan Stavans and Lalo Alcaraz. And I apologize for uh, if, I'm, if I'm screwing up the, those names. Uh, they write and illustrate a most imperfect union Contrary, contrarian History of the United States, which was published in 2014. I said 2016 earlier. My apologies. Um, Stavans and Alcaraz don't exactly pick up where Gonic leaves off. Um, we just, it's another cartoony history of the United States. But what they do is they, they, uh, they do give us a little more of a better look at contemporary events, at least contemporary events of the time, because the book was published much later. Now, at first, if you go by the book's cover... You're probably going to think that it's going to be one of those everything you thought of, you knew about United States history was wrong type of deals. Like it's a 
gotcha YouTube video or a Twitter thread, you know, the type of things that people like presented as if this is going to blow your mind. But for every interesting fact they have, there's like two breaths of hot air. You know the ones I'm talking about. But Stevans, who is the writer and the narrator, and Alcaraz is the illustrator and occasional Greek chorus type of voice, which uh, works really well as a storytelling trope, says from the beginning is that he, he doesn't want to appear to support one particular ideology on the political spectrum. He just calls himself a contrarian. Plus, his tone is surprisingly steady. It's not accusatory. And he highlights the importance of the events that have become mythical because, well, they are a part of American mythology for a reason. His mission in the book is to dispel myths and present facts as they are, saying on page one, quote, the past is elastic, shrinking and expanding depending on who is looking at them and when. Because of this, it's important to take a contrarian's viewpoint, to be wary of what the French call ideas fixes, lazy, unquestioned truths. A nation's history isn't what happened, but what we think happened. The only way to delve into history is responsibly, with precision, paying attention to what happened, not what we wish happened. He goes right after that Hollywood notion and also wants to show history through the lens of people and relationships instead of a chronological series of events. This means that while he does stick to the general timeline of American history that we've seen in the other two publications I've already talked about, when an event comes along that relates to something later in time or even in the present, such as like a cause and effects relationship or a similar person is involved or something, he will jump right to that event way in the future instead of like, you know, waiting several pages for the timeline to provide that connection. I found this refreshing because while my brain can work within a timeline, it also does love to jump around to various points in the proverbial map. The people become more important to this contrarian narrative than anything else. We, of course, get our historical figures, but we also get ways in which the various groups who make up our country have affected our growth as a society over the years. One of my favorites, perhaps I don't often see it in textbooks and perhaps because I find linguistics interesting, is the way that Stevans discusses the development of American English comes back to it a couple of times over the course of the book. And he begins by pointing out that Noah Webster created his first American dictionary of the English language, while John Adams had prescribed an Academy of English to preserve the language. This is like a lot like the Academy of French language that, that exists in Paris. But then he'll fast forward to like H.L. Mencken in, in his book, The uh, American Language, which was published in 1919. And he pointed out that while it's uh, cumbersome in its structure, Mencken gives us a perceptive exploration of the vicissitudes of American English as used by immigrants as well as native speakers. Now, later on, when he does get into 20th century America and a discussion of the contribution of various immigrant groups to our society, Stevans returns to that language. He points out that one of the greatest freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution is the right to free speech, and part of that is the lack of an officially codified national language. 
Of course, he also points out that some people think immigrants and their families don't switch languages fast enough. Thus, over the years, they've pushed for strict laws concerning English. In fact, there have always been hybrid ways of speaking in the United States. And really, when you think about it, while our society is a mosaic of people, the language is a bit of a melting pot. We've seen words from other languages work their way into our vernacular. There are dialects throughout our country full of foreign words and phrases. For example, I would say that people who grew up in the metro New York area know various Yiddish words and phrases more than, say, someone who grew up on the uh, Mississippi Delta. And conversely, there's Creole and Cajun phrases that my Long Island-born ass has never spoken and might not understand for at first glance. Again, it is one of the beauty, beautiful things about this country. And the fact that we don't bow to authoritarian thoughts on language is another indication of the preservation of our freedom. And I found this, as well as the tangents away from main events toward looking at how various groups came to the United States from other countries, like, you know, like what famine or revolution was going on there? And uh, where did those people eventually settle in the United States? Because the United States geographically is very, very large compared to Ireland or Italy or Romania or Poland or even Mexico or El Salvador. You know, like where, where did they come from? Where did they eventually end up? How did they influence our culture? And that's one of the strengths of this book. And it's in addition to the way that Stevans and Alcaraz take a look at an important historical event and encourage us to look a little deeper than the thousand foot view we often get with the mythology as history approach. Even the post-World War II Pax Americana doesn't get off light. What we see are their love for the innovations of the day and, and of our current day as well. There's an underbelly that gets exposed how our innovation has been costly in the name of blatant capitalism and consumerism, as well as the economic stress and personal stress it puts on each generation and on the environment. It's honestly what I do love about this approach, which is the need to stay within an event or a moment and sit in it because it relates to something we've done or what we're going to do or the people or groups of people. Not only that, Stavans and Alcaraz are doing an examination of history that has been important for centuries. You know, early in the book, while discussing the progress made through the first half of the 19th century, they spend a page talking about Alexis de Tocqueville, the French historical and social observer who came to the country and explored it during 1831, eventually writing the two-volume Democracy in America, which was published in 1835. On this page is a quote that I think out of everything I've read for this episode, all three pieces, is the one that is the most important and is the most resonant. The greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. At the end of the contrarian history of the United States, Stavans, our author, reiterates this, and he says, The history of the United States is one of constant cutting and pasting. We draw people in from all over the planet. The brain drain flows in our direction. The best actors, scholars, inventors, and entrepreneurs flock to our shores. 
We've built up our country by scavenging others. We cut out the best parts of other nations and eras and paste them into our amazing patchwork landscape. Ours is indeed a most imperfect union, but it's one that's always striving for perfection. It's an upward note to end on, even if it's not entirely optimistic or wholly original. After all, the phrase, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, is a cliche at this point, even if it is true. And honestly, I like both statements because they encourage critical thinking, which is key to understanding and which honestly is key to freedom. Because the beauty of our country's history is that it's complex. And facing it for what it is and was, the triumphs, the tragedies, and the hypocrisies, it is really fucking hard. And very often, it's not going to make you feel proud. It's not supposed to, though. On the flip side, it's not supposed to make you feel wholly ashamed either. And maybe I'm being cold, but I've always explored history with the idea that I want to look at it from that sort of emotionless side first and then come to my own conclusion, derive my own response out of it. Whether or not has that has any emotion attached is up to me. I love that quote by Alexis de Tocqueville. The greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. And I'm going to take it with me as I consider what is one of the most important messages to come out of one of my favorite novels of all time, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. In part two of the novel, after he's gotten the whole you did this to yourselves speech from Captain Beatty about why the world is the way it is, Montag goes to visit Professor Faber, and over the course of a long discussion about the value of books, Faber outlines for Montag what's important. The freedom to read what we want, the time to consider it, and the ability to act upon it. And I'll admit that in this very moment, that is not easy. The news cycle has shrunk down to the minute, and we don't get that chance to think because every moment of every day seems to demand a response whether it be a Facebook post, a tweet, a meme, a whatever. I mean, if you're out on the internet, you know what I'm talking about. And along with that is this ritual pissing contest about who is saying or doing more or saying or doing the right thing. The performance sometimes seems to matter more than the actual root of said performance, the actual beliefs, the cause, the issue. If we take the time to absorb the information given to us, though, at least in this environment, that's the wrong thing to do because we will the sky will fall before we act. And yet, as much as I roll my eyes at the chicken little of, say, Twitter, it's hard not to think that if something doesn't get done soon, we are going to be completely fucked. I'm releasing this episode on July 4th, 2022. I wrote it and recorded it the couple of weeks prior. This was in the midst of a Supreme Court session where they rolled back decades of progress and trampled on basic human rights and 
they're turning their eye toward more rights that have been gained over the course of the last couple of decades. I've watched the hearings or read the the recaps of the hearings in the paper on the hearings of the January 6th committee, where a faction of so-called patriots, in quotes, literally tried to overturn an election, literally tried to upend the democracy or the democratic election of presidents that we hold to in this country. We can get into granular details about whether or not we should have direct election. I know that we don't. I know how the electoral college works and everything, yada, yada, yada. But the factor of the matter is that our representative democracy, our American way did not work for these people because they they lost. The books I looked were at were all written before 2016, by the way. So I'm kind of curious as to how the authors would have reacted to what's happened since then. Now, what would they say about the fact that a minority political faction, literal literal minority, not in terms of demographics, would try to keep political power through unjust means, want women shoved into second-class citizenry, are so willing to legislate away the very existence of LGBTQI plus people, how they twist themselves into knots in order to, quote, justify the killings of black people by the police, how they put the deaths of children behind their apparent need slash right to own a fucking assault rifle. I don't know how to ignore these things so I can grill some burgers and put on that goddamn Lee Greenwood song. I don't know how to do that. And I wish I did. I wish I had an answer. Maybe one of the reasons I'm doing these three episodes is to come up with some way to remember why I consider this to be a great country, especially when we're in the midst of what feels like a slow descent into an uncertainty that quite frankly frightens the hell out of me. Looking at the past can help because we have repaired our faults and we have made progress. And if there's anything, there's the ability to reinforce those repairs so that those who would break everything again for their personal gain and wrap it all in the American flag, even though it really isn't, can't do that. So I'm going to continue this series with episode 134 where I'll be turning the lens on two works called A Day in the Life of America. One of them is a 1986 photographic book. The other is a 2019 documentary. That'll be, that'll be out in about a month. Next episode, that'll be episode 133, which is going to be out in about two weeks, is going to be a normal episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. And I am going to be looking at the 1987 John Hughes movie, Some Kind of Wonderful. So if you have any feedback or commentary on this episode, please send it my way. I will read it out in episode 134, the next America-centered episode. So you got a good month together or so to get those emails to me if you'd like to. You can send those to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Or you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. So as always, as I finish up here, thank you very, very much for listening. And take care. Oh
Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.